Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our author events at www.skylightbooks.com. At our website, you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. And don't be afraid to follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Uh, Pete Nelson is the author of several books, including a nonfiction one that also has dead in the title. <laughs> when you do a Google search for his name, you will find entries about a Pete Nelson that writes a lot about tree houses, but this is not that Pete Nelson, although this one does enjoy a good tree house. <laughs> but I think we can all agree that better than tree houses is a talking dog, and that is something that Pete Nelson has written about in his new book, I Thought You Were Dead. Please welcome Pete Nelson. Thank you, Steve. That other Pete Nelson would love this. Um, so it's about half an hour, I think, and then and then if there's questions, we can answer, we can try to find the answers to them. Um, this is a book. Um, just just a little preface. It took me um, two years to write and twelve years to edit. Because I I decided to write it without pain. you know I just got a new computer with a big hard drive, and uh, and I said I'm just going to write everything and not worry and then paste it all together and see what I got, and I had a, I, when I did that I had 1,200 pages, and it's down to 267 or something like that now, but there was there's just all kinds of stuff that is not just the main plot actually got cut and all the other ones. Um, <laughs> But uh, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a story about a guy who's down on his luck. He's divorced, he's alcoholic, he's impotent, he's um, middle-aged, he's out of shape. His father had a stroke and uh, he is employed. He's got a job uh, working for, a, the, the, uh, he's writing a book called Nature for Morons. And he, his agent told him, uh, these things are golden, but, but finish it quick because the publisher is going out of business. <laughs> And uh, that's publishing, he said. So he's, he's, he's doing all this research on, on the, I used to write for National Wildlife Magazine, and they, they bungled much of what I turned in, uh, in, in many ways. So uh, it, there's a little revenge factor here. We, um, but so his, his name is Paul, his dog's name is Stella. She's a 16-year-old shepherd lab mix. And when you're writing a book on nature, it's to your advantage to have a, a talking dog to, to give you sort of, and she has a dog perspective on things. He says, my dad had a stroke. I don't know if he's going to make it. And, the, and she says, well, that means more food for you, right? Um, so she, but she also has um, wisdom of her own. And uh, <coughs> he consults her. And, uh, and he never talks to her when anyone else is in the room. So it's, it's, a, it's a very special relationship they have. Do we have dog? owners here in the new one? Yeah. And about half the time I sign these books at readings, I, they ask me to sign it to their dog. And they, they actually, if you, the, the covers are beef flavored. <laughs> so you, if you buy two, you give one to your dog to eat. And uh, you, you can keep one to read. So anyway, Paul is, uh, is uh, doing a, a research for his book and he's talking to Stella. And uh, the, the title of this chapter is Darwin Schmarwin. This magazine article, Paul said, looking up from his research on nature for morons, says that dogs don't know why they bark. 
Says who? Stella asked, looking up from where she lay by the radiator. Says this dog evolution expert at Hampshire College, Paul said. He's like the world's leading expert on canid behavior, and he says that dogs just bark. That could be the stupidest thing I've ever heard, Stella said. When someone's at the door and I go to the door to bark, what does he think I'm saying? Well, I know, Paul said, but when my bowl is empty and I'm standing at my bowl barking, does he think I'm asking for a weather report? <laughs> wait, 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 Paul said, let me just finish reading this. Outside, a clap of thunder shook the sky. Stella did not like the sound of it, not at all. She'd heard of too many dogs who'd been struck by lightning, some of them lying in their own beds, indoors. It could travel down telephone lines and television cables and leap out at you and burn you. Some thunderclaps she'd heard were so strong that the sound alone could knock your house down. Some of what she'd heard was exaggerated, sure, but there was simply too much anecdotal evidence to discount at all. She couldn't help it. She didn't like thunder. It says here, Paul read, trying to distract her, that they compared the DNA of wolves and dogs and that the difference was a single haplotype, meaning that you and wolves are virtually identical genetically. But Stella wasn't listening. Lightning lit the room. She silently counted. One asnausage, two asnausage, three asnausage. When the thunder came, it came as a steady rumble that rattled her to the core. She looked at Paul, but knew there was nothing he could do about it. She tried to slow her breathing. You want to come up on the couch? Paul offered, come on up. She pushed her front end up and then paused, waiting for the feeling to come around in her hind quarters. Her front end was still strong enough that if she walked herself forward, the hind part usually followed. She placed a paw on the couch cushion and waited. Paul reached over and lifted her up onto the couch. She laid her head against his thigh. He tickled the skin on her belly, and for a moment she forgot about the storm raging outside. This is really interesting, Paul said, reading on. This guy says that working dogs, breeds that either herd or guard sheep, are the most highly evolved of all the dog breeds. Quote, indeed, it is useful to understand the behavior of adult dogs in terms of wolf-pup behavior. It's called pedomorphism. Pedo what, she said? Pedomorphism, meaning the adult of one species retains the juvenile characteristics of another, he read. The adult dog barks, just as a wolf pup barks, but adult wolves don't bark. Wolf pups, like adult dogs, will stay put in one place and wait to be fed, whereas adult wolves will do neither. Pups, like dogs, have the ability to bond with other species, a behavior adult wolves quickly outgrow. Relating upon maturation only to conspecifics, one reason they tend to make poor house pets even when supposedly tame, unquote. So when a border collie herds sheep, it says here, it will perform behaviors instinctively doing things that are hardwired into its brain because they're the same behaviors that wolves use to stalk and kill deer or elk. It's like dogs have been given incomplete wolf instructions because if they had the whole set of instructions, they'd kill and eat the sheep. Well, look, Stella said, lifting her leg when Paul scratched a particularly sensitive spot. I'm sure this professor guy is smart and all that, and he probably means well, but don't you find what he's saying just a bit lobocentric? <laughs> <laughs> meaning? Well, meaning it's always wolf this and wolf that, she said. Comparing us to wolves, I get tired of it. It's ludicrous. How is it ludicrous, Paul said. Wolves live in more complex societies than dogs do. Wolves fend for themselves in the wild. They can hunt down and kill elk. Could you do that? Why would I want to? Yeah, but could you? 
You're missing the point, Paul, Stella said. I don't have to. The answer is literally under your nose and you can't even see it. Meaning what? Well, just the implication that, it's do that dogs couldn't cut it as wolves, like we're too stupid to hunt down elk or deer or whatever, like we're failed wolves. More or less, Paul said. Well, maybe I don't understand it, Stella said, but when you explained evolution to me, you said the fittest individuals breed more successfully than less fit individuals. Right. So whoever is fittest has the highest population. Correct. Well then, Stella said, how many wolves would you say there are alive in the world today? Ballpark figure. Well, the article says 150,000. Good, she said. It's 150,000. Now, how many dogs are there? In the whole world, how many, how many dogs just in this country? How many dogs? <laughs> well, I'm not sure, Paul. 60 million in this country alone, Stella said. <laughs> so, if there are globally, say, 100 million dogs, low estimate, and 150,000 wolves, then who wins? <laughs> Who's the fittest? Who's the most highly evolved? According to Darwin's own definition, dogs. I rest my case, she said. What's it doing outside right now? It's raining. And where are the wolves? Out there in the rain. <laughs> and where am I? In here, on the couch, warm and dry. I have food in my dish. I don't have to spend any of my time wondering where my next meal is coming from. So am I a failed wolf or is a wolf a failed dog? <laughs> Well, there's really no comparison. They're big and mean and they eat deer. Not impressed. <laughs> Just then a brilliant flash of lightning lit the sky, the brightest so far. He covered Stella's ears with his hands, but the thunder followed immediately, a colossal booming explosion that rocked the house to its very foundation, followed by several aftershocks. And it didn't matter that Paul's hands had blocked some of the sound because Stella felt the percussion in her bones and perceived the sudden drop in the air pressure following the thunder as a kind of suffocating vacuum. Her heart raced. She felt as if she couldn't breathe. God, I don't like this, Paul. Please, she said. I can't take much more of this. I really can't. Then another flash and an even louder thunderclap. There, there, Paul said, stroking and soothing the dog as best he could. It's okay. It's all right. It's all over now. Just calm down. Yeah, easy for you to say, calm down, she said. Everything is okay, he said, scratching her behind the ears and on the soft part of her belly. It felt to him as if she'd lost another pound or two. I think you have one or two wolf genes left or you wouldn't be afraid of thunder. Remember what you were just saying. You live indoors. You don't have to be afraid of thunder. That's true, but 30,000 years ago when we moved indoors with you, you were still living in caves. <laughs> caves can't catch fire. Houses burn down all the time. So that's the relationship they have. <laughs> and <coughs> um, so Paul is, uh, he's also trying to, he's trying to recover from the divorce he's recently been through. His, his, they live in a small Northampton, Massachusetts, where um, if you break up with someone in a small town, most of the time, everybody else knows more about what's going on than you do with your, with your ex. You know, and, and, and my ex and I, we sort of said, divided the town up. I said, I want to be able to go to this bar and not see you. Which wasn't that much of a stretch because she never came with me at night. It was part of the problem. Um, and, uh, and so on. So, uh, and then, um, so Paul, he's also trying to start jogging. And he's, he's been taking, um, well, this is, a, this is part of his, his 
efforts to rehabilitate himself in every way. And he's, and he's dating a woman who, uh, he met, when he met her, she was already dating somebody, but it wasn't exclusive. And the other guy is a doctor. And Paul is an is a alcoholic, impotent drunk. <laughs> so he, he knows he's, he's got some uh, winning over to, to do. And the, the doctor takes Tamsin, his girlfriend, to Paris for the week while he, um, he took her to Worcester for lunch. <laughs> Um, but she said, but we had a great time in Worcester. Um, so he, and so he, she's, she's in Paris and he's, you know, trying to deal with things. And he gets a postcard. Says, the postcard from Paris was a print of Van Gogh's painting The Night Cafe. On the back she'd written, hey Paul, how are you? Oh, Paul, oh, he was supposed to meet her at Fenway Park and, and he was afraid she was going to break up with him so he didn't show up. <laughs> That's the way things are going for him. Uh, the postcard from Paris was a print of Van Gogh's painting The Night Cafe. On the back she'd written, Hey Paul, how are you? Hope all's well. The food is fabulous here. I think I've gained five pounds. Love, tea. She hadn't mentioned the missed rendezvous. Had she forgiven him? Or, more to the point, had she forgiven him? And were monkeys currently flying out her butt? And at the bar, the word was that Bender's heart attack was entirely stress-related. Paul found this worrisome. Running every day helped him with stress, but he also needed to relax, to quiet himself inside. Tamsin had once suggested that he try yoga. He went to the laundromat and looked at the bulletin board for a flyer for a yoga class, something not too crunchy, huggy. He found one offered by a woman named Amelia, who patiently explained to him on the phone when he told her that he'd always been interested in the martial arts, that yoga wasn't one of them. <laughs> Amelia was slender and serene and wore her hair in a fat black braid, and she smiled slyly when he cracked wise in class. It was all he could do to bite his lip and keep quiet one night when she led them from a Savangasana, or candle pose. Lie on your back and stick your legs as high in the air as they'll go, hands on hips. Into a halasana, or plow pose. Bring your legs down behind you until your toes touch the floor. Your knees should touch your forehead and your rear end is sticking up in the air, which had caused the gentle young man on the mat next to Paul to fart loudly. <laughs> Everyone else in the room was too centered in the moment to say anything or even snicker. Do we have to pay extra for the aromatherapy, Paul wanted to ask. He liked the mindful breathing part. The poses hurt like hell, but that seemed to be the idea, learning how to get bent out of shape without getting bent out of shape. Amelia gave him a very cursory introduction to transcendental meditation theory, and he found that if he practiced it on his own, even without true instruction, it helped him feel calm, and sometimes the daydreams he experienced were wicked good. His experience in yoga class was soured when a woman named Marty joined the group. He recognized her as one of his ex-wife's co-workers. She recognized him with a smile and said she'd just been talking to Karen that morning. They were going to sign up together for Amelia's prenatal yoga class. It's more effective than Lamaze, Marty said perkily, and you don't have to drag your husband around to do it. Until this point, Paul had been unaware that his ex-wife was pregnant. His friends at the Bay State were sympathetic when he told them, and they bought him beers to help him drown his sorrows, or at least give them a good soaking. It was clearly unfair of Karen to have children without him. Of course, she was a free agent and had hooked up with a nice guy named Kurt, or Kirk, and she had the right to behave however she pleased and didn't need Paul's consent, permission to so much as blow her nose. That didn't make it fair. 
It probably meant she'd be getting married. That sucked too. When he got home, he opened the top drawer of his dresser and in it the cigar box sized jewelry case that he'd inherited from his grandfather, Paul. I'm not here. Uh, he, he'd inherited this jewelry case along with some of the old man's accessories. Nothing fancy. A pair of cufflinks featuring hunting dogs and flying ducks. A tie clasp in the shape of a Shriner's scimitar. In the back of the jewelry box, Paul found a small Ziploc bag containing a folded cocktail napkin upon which he and Karen, that's his ex-wife, had written Rosemary, Sam, parentheses, Samuel, slash, Samantha, close parentheses, Henry, Caledonia, and with a question mark after it, Booker? He considered mailing her the list that they'd collaborated on with a brief note saying, these names you can't use. Instead, he took the napkin into the bathroom where he lifted the lid on the toilet and using the matches he kept nearby, lit the napkin on fire, twisting it as it burned to make sure the flames consumed it before he dropped it into the bowl. He flushed twice. Chili for dinner? Stella inquired from the doorway. I knew you were gonna get that. Would you like to go for a walk? I thought you'd never ask. He carried her down the front steps. It was a fine summer evening with the breeze rustling the leaves overhead to let the moonlight sift through. He had to slow down to let Stella catch up. He tried to remember the things he'd learned in yoga class and took a deep breath in, hold it out. Did something happen? Stella asked. I found out Karen is pregnant and remarrying probably. So she's having a litter, <laughs> yeah, so to speak. And you're not one of the fathers. <laughs> nope. I thought she didn't want kids. Yeah, apparently she's changed her mind, Paul said. He turned left at the corner, heading for the cemetery. He didn't expect Stella to understand. And for her part, she seemed to know better than to probe, though she stayed close to him when they walked, something she'd always done when she knew he was upset about something. He wasn't sure how she knew, but she did. Back at the house, he lifted the dog, climbed the front steps, and set her down. He told her to lie down, poured himself a scotch, and then rejoined her, sitting on the port swing. The scotch tasted good. He sipped, even though the alcohol had the unwanted side effect of letting the past leak back into the present. Some people said spirits damaged the memory, but he found the opposite to be true. They kept memories alive. He rocked. It was the same port swing where he and Karen had discussed when she should stop taking the pill. They'd agreed on New Year's Eve, arbitrarily. They'd made love a few times a week after that, but as the year came to a close and the nights grew longer, they made love less and less frequently as he more often failed to sustain his erections and he asked himself if he was afraid of the moment when she would go off the pill and the stakes would go up. Afraid of what, though? And then she'd said they needed more money first. So Paul put in extra hours at his computer, at his office, to get more money, until Karen said he was never there for her. He argued that he couldn't be in two places at once, to which she replied that he couldn't even be in one place at once. Was it Karen who'd first stopped believing, and he'd caught it from her? To have a kid, she had to believe in one of three things, herself, him, or the future. 
To believe in herself was on her to-do list, but when she looked inside herself for strength, she saw ferocity instead at the end anyway, like a thunderstorm darkening the midday sky. And then one night the fights stopped, and that was worse than the conflict. That meant she'd quit. To believe in him wasn't much easier. His heart was good, she said. Not a mean bone in his body, but at the same time, there was something wrong, missing. She couldn't be more specific. Something made him run away from her, she said. Something hidden that made it hard for him to trust people. She felt kept at a distance, unimportant, unseen, and that wasn't going to change, and she was tired of it. The future was easier for her to believe in, except that it was a fantasy. She wanted to be a stay-at-home mom in a big house with four kids, she said. He tried to make her dream come true, but every time he managed to tuck a thousand dollars away toward a down payment on a house, she wanted to buy a new couch or take a vacation or replace a perfectly good appliance, and the money got pissed away. Her pay working in an art gallery did nothing to further the cause. The farther they got from their goal, the more they argued, despaired, drifted until he envied those mythical couples who had nothing but each other and screwed three times a day on their unpaid, using their unpaid bills for a mattress. Each time he failed, he tried to shrug it off. But each time he shrugged, another piece of his body fell to the ground, his fingers, hands, arms, legs, internal organs, until he had nothing left to shrug with. And then finally she had to walk away, telling him, I can't fix this. His friends told him life goes on, but what they failed to mention was that life goes on indeed, on and on and on and on. There was no magic anywhere to be found. The days dragged. He walked around his little town with a giant billboard sprouting from his skull that read, Divorced. When does the billboard fall off? He asked friends experienced in such matters. It doesn't, they told him. They just build a road around you. And then he went, in, he went inside to finish, to refresh his drink, feeling a bit unsteady on his feet while the dreaming dog twitched her tail and woofled in her sleep. In the kitchen, dust bunnies lay undisturbed in the corners. It was the same apartment where he and Karen had tried to make something bigger and better, something more than the sum of their parts. Maybe it was time to move. He saw the walls she'd painted, thinking it would brighten things up and possibly save the marriage, the first of her last-ditch efforts. He closed his eyes and heard the ghost sounds, laughter, music, fragments of dinner party conversations flitting about the house like moths eating holes in the fabric of time, sounds of summer barbecues, autumn rakes scraping the sidewalk, a Christmas goose crackling in the oven because everybody else cooked turkeys, so he and Karen did what they could to start their own tradition. He heard the noise of her screaming at him until the piano rang in harmonic sympathy and he heard her sobbing softly from across the room, the kind of sorrow you can't comfort because you're the cause of it. What would the Zen masters, the yoga masters, do at a time like this? Did their hearts break like everybody else's? Did they drive past their ex's house at two in the morning to see if the light was on in the bedroom window? He drew a deep, slow breath and focused on the beating of his own heart until the freight train split the night silence, blasting towards Brattleboro, making the house shake. He wondered who was driving the train and whether they were headed towards home or away from home. Did the engineer know where love goes when it dies, or how it was possible that a humming, hummingbirds can cross the ocean while words can fail to fly a half a pillow's distance? And on those cold winter nights, when the snow obscured the tracks, did the engineer ever lose faith? 
that the rails would still be there, that the bridges would hold, that there really was Vermont, that there really was a train, and that the clickety-clacky heard wasn't just the sound of his own heart moving away from him in the night, growing fainter and fainter, beat by beat. Paul had weathered the storm and made it to spring. And then Tamsin found him, with her smile and her wet, bright eyes. The phone rang, and magic re-entered the world, like the day Houdini was born. Nurses in fishnet stockings, doctors in top hats and tails, asking for silence as they levitated. Mother Houdini passed a brass hoop around her as she pushed and groaned, the calliope playing entrance of the gladiators, until suddenly, and with great flourish, the doctors pulled from between her legs a bouncing seven pounds white rabbit and the hospital gasped and then a baby was heard to cry from inside a padlocked cabinet in the next room <laughs> so Houdini was born and so Tamsin was delivered to Paul entering off to the side while he wasn't looking her arrival astonished him it had no explanation it came after much pain and labor and crying and gnashing of teeth unexpected and astonishing presto Ta-da! And now she was in Paris with Stephen. <laughs> he was too drunk to know whether to laugh or cry, but he thought he might feel better if he did something impulsive. He took his drink and the phone out onto the porch and he sat back down on the swing, nearly missing it as it bounced off his legs. Who are you calling? Stella asked him. He dialed 411 and got the number for his ex-wife. Stella's ears pricked up when he heard Karen's name. Paul, Stella said, I have to say I really think this is a bad idea. It's way too late to be calling anybody. Oh, come on, Paul slurred. I just want to congratulate her. I'm sure she's been trying to reach me to tell me the news in person. Put the phone down, Paul, Stella said, seriously. He put the phone down, then picked it up again and dialed Tamsin's number. He wanted to leave her a message to tell her how sorry he was for having stood her up. He wanted bad idea. He hung up after listening to her outgoing message and the sound of her vo voice soothed him. He lay down on the porch swing, his knees bent. He was so tired. When he awoke, it was morning. He sat up, the world swimming for a moment until he remembered that he was lying on the porch swing. His head hurt. Stella was next to him on the floor and opened her eyes and, and yawned. He looked down and saw that in her sleep she'd had an accident, a turd about the size of a mini donut pressed into the porch floor. He collected his thoughts, got some Kleenexes and picked up the turd with, and flushed it down the toilet, then washed the spot with a wet paper towel. My bad, she said. Not at all my fault, Paul said. I'm a lousy pet owner. I should have walked you. You did walk me, Stella said. Oh, Paul said, remembering little of the previous night. He opened the door and Stella followed him into the kitchen where he checked and filled her food dish and her water bowl. Then he filled a bowl of his own with cereal and milk. Anyway, it wasn't your fault. He told her you couldn't help it. Help what? The accident. What accident? <laughs> The turd, he would have said, but didn't. She'd forgotten already, her memory failing, but he let it go. Her dignity was more important than making sure his apology had registered. So um, I could read more, or, or we could uh, talk. Want a little bit more? Okay. 
Okay, I got a whole book full of stuff here. Um, well, I'll read another dog chapter. It's, it's really about more than just this, but this is what reads the best. Um, and um, so Tamsin comes back and he apologizes for being so lame. And, and um, she really loves him. And she believes they're soulmates, but she has a problem. And that is that he's an alcoholic and she can't tell him what his problem is or then he'll quit because she's told him to and then it, it becomes codependent and it's a mess. But she forgives him and um, so he's back and he's jogging and he's doing all this stuff and it um, says he'd retained Tamsin's good opinion through the summer. He'd lost almost 15 pounds since he'd started running and cutting back on Klondike bars and donuts. He, made, he makes a solemn vow to, if he, to drink light beer if he's also eating Klondike bars that night. You know, that, that's his idea of dieting. Um, sometimes um, Tamsin joined him on his runs. In his competition with Stephen, he neither gained nor lost ground, as best he could tell, though he tried not to measure. At the end of August, the students returned, Smithies and their moms, and occasionally dads, walking three steps behind, trolling the store aisles and forming lines at the cash registers downtown, buying printer cartridges and plastic laundry baskets and message boards for their dorm room doors. You could tell the freshmen by the dubious glaze in their eyes. He was getting ready to head down to the Bay State one night to check out a blues band when Stella was suddenly in the doorway. Don't go. Something's going to happen, she said. She was panting. It was warm. It was a warm late summer evening, maybe 75 or 80 degrees, but not so warm that she'd be overheated. A breeze had kicked up, making the air quite pleasant. So <laughs> Sorry. Um, saliva dripped from her tongue. Just calm down. Tell me what's going to happen. I don't know. Something bad. Something bad. Paul, please. What? What do you want me to do? Don't go. Stay here. Make it stop. Make what stop? What do you want me to stop? The thing that's going to happen. Well, if you don't tell me what's going to happen, how can I make it stop? Stella was beside herself with fear. And then he heard it. Distant but distinct, a low rumble that could have been a train slowly snaking through town, but wasn't. He looked out the window at the sky. He saw a distant flash of lightning. Stella paced and panted, unable to listen. It's just thunder, Paul said. You've been through thunderstorms before. This one is different, she insisted. How is this one different? I don't know. It just is. I have a feeling. You have a feeling, now you're psychic. You don't have to be psychic to know when something bad is going to happen. These things cause fires. I can't run like I used to. Another rumble sounded, still distant but stronger than the first, which meant the storm was indeed getting closer. That she'd heard it before he did was no surprise. Do you want me to close the windows? Let me just... I don't care if you close the windows, she interrupted. What good is closing the windows going to do? The sky was lit with a flash of lightning. He heard the first few drops of rain splattering down on the roof. The air smelled of ozone, a stainless steel, fresh-cut hay smell. She'd probably smelled the storm coming before she'd heard the thunder. Do you want to go for a ride in the car? Oh, God, no. This time the thunder was loud and explosive, maybe a seven or eight on a scale of one to ten. He tried putting his hands over her ears, tried putting his arms around her to calm her down as the clouds broke and the rain came down all at once. Wind shook the lilac tree outside the kitchen window. Stella, it's okay. You're indoors. Nothing is going to happen. Make it stop. Shh, 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 come on, come on. 
He led her under the kitchen table and told her to lie down. She often took shelter under the kitchen table during storms, but tonight it wasn't enough. He turned off all the lights, grabbed the bedspread from his bed, and threw it over the kitchen table, arranging it so that the hem of the bedspread touched the floor, and then he got under the table with her. When the lightning flashed, the bedspread blocked the light, save a thin line where the bedspread met the floor. He put his arm around her and stroked her face. She was able to sit, but too nervous to lie down. Paul, I don't like this. This is dangerous. This is a bad one. Shh, shh, come on. There's no danger, Stout. You're in a big, strong house. You're very safe here. You're very safe. This house is made of wood. Wood can catch fire. That's your blood memory style, Paul said, stroking her. Thousands of years ago, back when you guys were still evolving and living outdoors with the wolves. Another crackle of thunder. Jesus, shit. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Oh, my God. Do you remember the story I told you about men and dogs? No. You don't remember? No. About how we got to be friends? No. She seemed terribly confused as if she didn't know where she was. Tell me the story again, she asked. I'd be happy to, he said. He put his face next to hers. Thousands and thousands of years ago, back when you were living outdoors with the wolves, sometimes forest fires started from lightning strikes, and those of you in the pack who were too old to run away from the fire got left behind. And now you feel like that's going to happen, so that's what you're afraid of. But Stella, that was 30,000 years ago. That's 210,000 years ago in dog years. Tell me the story, she insisted. Tell me about 30,000 years ago. Well, 30,000 years ago is when dogs and people first got to be friends. Today, scientists digging around in the ruins of these old Neolithic, Neolithic villages sometimes find the remains of dog bones and human bones lying side by side. Were the dogs chewing on the human bones? <laughs> no, he said. The dog bones were usually found near where the garbage dumps were, which meant that some dogs stayed wolves, but others decided to become scavengers and live off what the humans left for them. And then some of you who'd, figured, who'd become scavengers got to be very clever and figured out how to make humans your friends. How did we do that? By looking us in the eye and not being afraid, Paul said. Only the very bravest and the very smartest among you had the courage to come up and eat out of human beings' hands because up to then we'd been the enemy. We'd both been wild animals, humans and dogs, but somewhere along the line, at about the same time in history, we decided there was a better way to live together and that's when dogs moved indoors instead of hanging around the dumps. And dogs liked it indoors because it was warm and dry and easier to get food and so out of gratitude, long dogs learned how to do jobs for humans, like guard sheep, like guard sheep and pull carts and rescue people and rescue people by using their keen sense of smell. Dogs even guarded children from other beasts in the wilderness. Dogs were very helpful and very happy to earn the table scraps that the humans would give them, and the dogs were very grateful to have dogs, humans were very grateful to have dogs as friends. And humans and dogs had learned to love one another in a way that no other two species have ever learned to love one another out of all the other animals on the planet. There has never been another example of two species that decided to love one another. And not cats either. No, not cats, Paul said. People love cats, and cats certainly enjoy people, but cats don't lay down their lives and die for people the way dogs do. Cats don't swim out into lakes and pull drowning children ashore, or run into burning buildings, or leap into the darkness when they hear a threatening noise. And 
if a person dies in a cabin in the woods and there's a cat in the cabin with him, the cat will eat the human's dead body rather than starve to death, but a dog would starve to death too rather than betray the friendship. Some people say that makes cats smarter, but I say that makes dogs better. <laughs> so if you died, I couldn't eat you? <laughs> you wouldn't want to. I wouldn't? No. Could I roll in you? Sure. That would be all right. The lightning and the thunder had stopped. It was still raining. So, just to finish the story, people let dogs live in their houses because they loved them, not because they needed their sheep guarded. I'm sorry, I read that wrong. Anyway, that's right, Paul said. And it used to be that lightning would hit houses and make them catch fire, but that doesn't happen anymore because of lightning rods. What's a lightning rod? It's a thing that directs the electricity away from the house. What's electricity? That's what lightning is made out of, and it's just too much to explain right now, but the point is, you're going to be all right in a house because you're safe and dry, and I think the storm is over. Now, should you feel better? He listened and heard only the sound of raindrops dripping from the trees. A little. She was calmer. She looked at him. Are you still going out? No, he said. You feel like lying in bed and watching television? Sure, she said. The bed is the softest place in the house. He lifted the bedspread and let her out from their improvised shelter beneath the kitchen table. When he looked down, he saw that Stella had had another accident. The storm had literally scared the crap out of her. A, a solid turd on the linoleum floor beneath the table. He picked it up using a wad of toilet paper, wiped the floor clean, and flushed it all down the toilet. He saw no need to tell her. He cleaned her up, put the bedspread back on his bed, and lifted her up onto the mattress where she lay down with her back to him, one leg up, asking for a belly scratch. He complied, turning on the television to The Tonight Show. Whatever happened to that white-haired guy? Stella asked. Johnny Carson? Yeah. Oh, he retired um, a few years ago. I miss him. I knew him my whole life. <laughs> Me too. He was really kind to animals. These new guys just make fun of them. What's he, what's he doing these days? Playing tennis, I guess, Paul said. That's good exercise, Stella said. <laughs> I love you, Paul. I know. I love you more. Yeah, probably. <laughs> just kidding. So, <laughs> so that's the relationship they have. Thank you. I, sh I should thank you. I should say that this just totally could have been a photograph they took of, of Stella. The real dog I had, and uh, and she was terrified of thunder. And, and I came home. I was working, and I had an office downtown, uh, about a half a mile from where I lived. And there's bad storm, so I rushed home because I knew she'd be freaked out. Because I'd come home one time before, and she was in the bathtub, just trembling. And so I came home, and I looked, and and I looked under the bed in the bathtub, and I she was nowhere. And I, I kept calling her name, and then I saw that she'd gotten up on the couch climbed over the end table and pushed through the screen, broke the, the wire screen and gotten out onto the front porch. And she was gone. And, and uh, I took her everywhere and, and I didn't have to train, I, she never, I, I didn't tie her up. So, so she had this dog tag that said my phone number 
and her name and said, if you find me outside a restaurant, leave me alone. You know, because people would pick her up and take her home and call me and say, we found your dog outside a restaurant. I know, I put her there. Um, <laughs> but her phone number was there. So I, 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 she broke through the screen and I went looking for her. I drove all around, I couldn't find her. And the phone rang at about 11 o'clock at night and someone said, your dog's downtown at Curtis and Schwartz, which was this place I went for breakfast. And I, I drove downtown and that's what I saw. She was, she was, she had, she was looking in this restaurant, it was you know, black, it was just a breakfast place. She, she was going, <laughs> and I tapped her on the shoulder, and she was very glad to see me. Um, and so that's what the title is. That's why that's what dogs think. That's why they're so happy when they see you, because when they don't see you, they think they think you're dead. Um, so do you do question and answers? Do you want to? Can I ask the question? No, you ask. Me. <laughs> if you have any. If you're not, we have wine and cheese and or no cheese, no cheese. <laughs> snacks. But I'm sure there's a cheese store nearby. If <laughs> yeah, there's cheese at, at the house, yeah. I started it in 1995, and, and, I, and it was so long, and, and then I tried to get friends to read it, and it was difficult. <laughs> And and, it's, and, uh, and then I joined a writers group and and but you know, this is kind of like you know I had to do other stuff for to pay the rent so I, I had to like steal I could only work on this when I'd gotten ahead of the game enough that I could set aside a week or a day or something so it was it was bits and pieces um, and and it took a very long time to sort of get it into shape I mean I, I should tell you, the original story was about a guy who comes home. And he hears on his answering machine a voice, and it says, you've got a kid. And so he tries to track down all his old girlfriends. And he, and he drives, you know, to the Midwest, and, and that, was, that was the 800 pages. That <laughs> and the editor said, I really like, it was partly, you know, I cut it way back, but it was in the, in the version we submitted. And uh, he said, uh, he liked that idea, but it wasn't part of this book. So, he, and he wants me to do that for the next book. So, that I'm, but it's a set in you know, 1998. And in the original version, the way he found he found the person who left the message because she calls back and someone says, "Did you know you can star six nine a number and find out?" You know, that's the technology that when I when I wrote the whole thing. So now, with Facebook and Google and Spokio and all these things, it's it's a whole different story. Yeah, yeah, she went in the car, and and uh, and, he, and he hired. A, there was a lesbian private detective agency. Um, there, I think there is one. It, there, I don't. There is in Northampton, um, and uh, and so on. Yeah, there was a lot of stuff. And I had the ghost of Sylvester Graham and the ghost of Emily Dickinson were characters, and he had long. You know who Sylvester Graham was? He was he was a health food nut, and he invented Graham flour. And he's credited with inventing the graham cracker, which is not true. I just heard that in NPR. I almost called on my cell phone and to, because they said he invented the graham cracker, but he just invented the flour. But he, he invented these, he, he advocated um, long walks in the moonlight. And you know, he had good ideas, you know, fresh foods and, and whole grains. And, and they, they, he, they, Oberlin College adopted his diet as, as part of their college program. And kids were like, Checking in the hospital with malnutrition, they had to, un had to change the program. <laughs> but but in the in the book, he he walks his dog in the cemetery, and the ghost is there, and he has these long conversations about sex with this guy from the 18th century, 19th century, um, where at the time the problem was sexual excessiveness, and and everything he did was to try to try to 
diminish the male sexual drive, whereas today it's quite the opposite. Um, but they were really worried about too much drive back then. And so that's all gone. <laughs> but I did keep one joke. There's a, there's, a point, there's a point around the cemetery where Emily Dickinson got pulled over in her buggy for reckless driving. Uh. Thank you very much. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in the beginning of the book, you have a quote from Paul from Nature from Moron. Yeah. About the heart cells being separated. Is that true? Is that the truth? That is true. Yeah, yeah. He, the stuff. Yeah, I'm a little annoyed. All these reviews say he's a hack writer. You know, and I, and I got these passages. I thought they were pretty good. I know. Uh, they, yeah, it was there. No, they, yeah, they, you know, because he knows it's never going to be published, so he's just writing. He's not doing a whole lot of research. But he's doing a little. And, and, um, and it was based on, there was a TV show called The Incredible Machine, and the narrator was E.G. Marshall, and it was produced by National Geographic, and it was on television in the 70s. Does anyone remember that? There were two incredible things, and one was heart cells, um, and an uh, individual heart cell has a beat, they, they pulse, but they don't synchronize until they touch each other, and then they start, they synchronize. But what, uh, what, what they found is they, they, they synchronize before they touch, there's some sort of communication. And to me that kind of explains, you know, he's just a metaphor for love. And, um, and I, you know, so, and my, I also was, my, I had a son at the time I was working on this, and he was asking me these questions about animals. So I was using some of his, uh, he would say, can a kangaroo swim? Does anyone know? No one knows. I don't think anyone knows. I told him if a kangaroo could swim, they wouldn't live in Australia. <laughs> but, uh, anyway, I, I, but I digress or something. Um, well, I'll be happy to sign books to your dogs or, or to yourself. They're not really beef flavored. I just want to get someone to lick the book <laughs> while I'm watching. And, and, um, and keep your thoughts, and in, in we know Oprah is reading it, and so we're hoping she likes it. Yeah. We're hoping she licks it. <laughs> I hope she doesn't eat the book, you know. Yeah, yeah I could. She's eating other books. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you all for coming. I'm really happy to see you all. And thank you for having me. And thank you, Robin, for setting it up. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Now, don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Ashling and Arlo. And you can check them out on MySpace. Facebook, or at the iTunes Music Store. And thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.